listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Please stand as you are able as I read our scripture passage today from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of God. Of God. Please, be, please be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. As we've said, this is one of those Sundays where we don't have any childcare downstairs. So uh, officially, we call it a family worship Sunday. Unofficially, it's wiggle worship today. So uh, adults, this is your like one of your few chances in the year to move around a lot while I'm preaching, and it's not going to bother me at all because it's, I'm just ready for it. So let's let's do it. Enjoy the wiggling, you guys too. Enjoy the wiggling, okay? This I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Maybe spent some time with family. This last weekend we were with uh, my wife's family at their home in Iowa. Uh, a few years back, they bought. Uh, they bought about 50 acres of land or so outside of the small town uh, that they lived in, and they built their dream home, perched up on top of the highest hill uh, around. They're at the end of Rolling Road, uh, a mile-long drive with just a couple of, car, or a couple of, of houses on it. And, and from their giant living room windows, we can all line up and look out and see the entire road leading up to their house and watch all the traffic, everything that's going, uh, going on down there. And Every holiday, as each successive carload of cousins arrives, you know exactly where the cousins are going to go. To the windows, where they can watch and see who's showing up next. It's, it's an annual tradition, of, a tradition of anticipation, a ritual of, of bouncing and running and pointing and waiting that's punctuated by, I see a car, and oh man, it's not them, and why are they taking so long, and why is Uncle Andrew always late, and, and they're here, you know, they're here. That's the, the season that we're in, the season of Advent, the season of anticipation, the season of, of looking back and remembering Jesus' first coming and looking forward in anticipation of his second coming. If you've ever wondered why we call this season Advent, it's because Advent is just from a Latin word that means to move towards something, to, to move towards it or to come, to go somewhere. That's, you know, why we have words like adventure. Uh, that begin with the same sound. So we're in this season of Advent, of coming, of, of Jesus moving towards us, which is the beginning of the year in the Christian calendar. Today is actually New Year's Day in the Christian calendar where we begin the year focused on Jesus' coming, anticipating and reflecting, looking forward and looking backwards all at the same time. 
And I know for us, with Thanksgiving right here at the beginning of it and Christmas at the end of it, in our culture, it's this season of anticipating reunion, of being together again, of coming together with family, of remembering our families and remembering that time together, but also of remembering the one that we're waiting for, the one who has come and who is coming again. That's why we're going to take uh, the next four weeks to spend some time in these first few verses of John's gospel. If you've been with us, we've been going through Matthew for quite a while, and we're going to come back to Matthew after this. But for just the next couple of uh, weeks, we decided let's go to the first 18 or so verses of John's story of Jesus Because he gives us this wonderful introduction, this picture of Jesus that makes us look forward to and long for his coming in these first 18 verses. And we don't know this for sure, but it's almost as if John, when he was putting all of this this story of Jesus together, you know, he collected all the stories, he mined his own memories and talked to the other disciples and, and kind of got everything in the order that he wanted it in and then went back and wrote this introduction because it sets up everything that comes in the rest of his story of Jesus. Now, we're not going to, we don't have time to, you know, go through all of that, of course. We're not going to shift into John and spend all of our time there in that gospel. But for the next couple of weeks, in just these few verses, we're going to anticipate the arrival of Jesus. Try to get excited about his coming. To, to stand at the window and point and wait and say, that might be him. I think, I think he's coming. So, if you haven't already turned to John chapter 1, let's, let's turn there now. If you want to grab one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, it's on page 1053. And we're going to jump in to just these first five verses this morning. All right, we'll start with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, notice John doesn't start by telling us who he's talking about. He doesn't say, in the beginning was Jesus, actually we don't know that he's talking about Jesus for another 14, 15, 16, 17 verses or so before he actually gives a name to this person he's talking about. But he starts with this big kind of theological, this, this, this huge zoomed out introduction to who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, he starts with this phrase, in the beginning, that if you've ever opened a Bible before, it might sound familiar to you. If you've tried one of those Bible through a year reading programs, or you just ever thought, I'm going to try reading this thing, and you went to page one, you may recognize that phrase from the beginning of Genesis, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created. Sounds familiar. See, Matthew starts his story of Jesus uh, very plainly with, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And Mark starts it with, hey, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. And Luke gives this long-winded kind of literary introduction to where he got all the sources from and why he's writing and all that. But John, John zooms way out, uh, way farther out than the other three authors does and say, let's go back to the beginning of the story. It's like when somebody asks you, you know, hey, where are you from? And instead of saying Indianapolis, you say, my mother. You're you're just going back a little bit further than anybody expected in answering the question. That's what John's doing here. He's just going uh, back an extra step or two, trying to get us to hear, you know, echoes of Genesis and how he starts the story of, of Jesus. 
since so much of Jesus' story is about light and life and creation, he's saying, let's look at the old creation before we go to the new creation. Let's, let's remember the one who made us before we introduce the one who will remake us. So he starts with, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, at the absolute beginning of history, at the very root of the universe, at the very beginning of all things, before anything else, he says, there was this word. Before anything was created, before time began, before anything else, there existed and continually exists. That's the sense of the verb he's using here. There continually exists this one John calls the word. There was never a time when there was not the word. If you've ever been asked, hey, what was before that? And what was before that? And what was before that? You know, all along and along like a Dr. Seuss cartoon all the way down. You say, at the very beginning of all things was the word. But what's the word? We want to ask John that question because it's a good question. He introduces this term to us, the word, as if he expects us to know exactly what he's talking about. But if you lived in John's day and you sat down with some of your neighbors to read through John's story of the life of Jesus together with them and and say one of your neighbors was your average Roman citizen and and another was sort of your average Jewish citizen and the third was maybe a a Jewish guy who'd kind of grown up in the sort of Greek and Roman education system and you said in the beginning was the word, they all three would know exactly what you meant and would each have a very different idea of what they thought you meant. See, your Roman neighbor, and this is what we love about John's writing, it's so full of words that have multiple meanings that he all folds together. Uh, In the beginning was the word, your Roman neighbor would hear that and say, well, yeah, I know exactly what the word is. The word is that that fundamental uh, reason or, or rationality or order to things that undergirds and kind of holds the whole universe together and keeps everything working. The word is why when you drop something, it falls every single time. The word is why the sun comes up every day and the moon cycles through its 28-day rhythm and the seasons come and go and the rain falls and plants come up and people grow and die and the the cycle continues. The word is why when you see something happen a hundred times, you can be reasonably confident it's going to happen the 101st time. Right? The word is why all triangles have three sides. And there's no such thing as a square circle. That's because of the word. Your Roman neighbor knows that the word is this basic organization underneath everything that makes everything make sense. Which has always been there. And always will be. Your Jewish neighbor, on the other hand, doesn't necessarily agree. Now, your Jewish neighbor who grew up in sort of the, the Greek system or the, or the Roman uh, educational world has a little bit different perspective on it. Because of his Jewish background combined with that Greek education, you know, when he hears in the beginning was the word, he's thinking not of the rationality that undergirds everything, but of more like the, the fundamental essence of every thing. You know, when you look at uh, a dog, for instance, 
You could look at a hundred different dogs that are of all such great variety, right? Some are big, some are small, some are long-haired, some are short-haired, uh, some are fat, some are skinny, some are dumb, some are dumber. And, and you, you can look at all of these dogs and yet somehow recognize that all of them are in fact a, a dog, right? Because there's some sort of like basic essence of dogness that they all share in common. And that's what your Jewish Roman neighbor thinks of when he thinks of the word. Not dogs necessarily, but this fundamental kind of essence of things that gives everything shape or form or, or kind of shows it what it's supposed to be. And it's true about everything from dogs to apples to trees to chairs to, to love to the color red to ice cream to mothers to justice to parties and rocks and anything else you can think of. There, there's some sort of like original essence of each one of the, these things that exists in the mind of God. And you call that collection of things the word. In the beginning was the word. All the basic things. Things that make up the world has existed from the very beginning. Now, your Jewish neighbor who didn't grow up in the Roman system doesn't necessarily agree. Because he's been steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures. So when he hears, in the beginning was the Word, he's thinking of the Word of God. The Word of God that creates, that, that moves, that judges, that acts, that redeems, that, that saves. The word is whatever God says that does something. The word is how God creates things and shows people who he is and, and, and what he's like. The word is kind of God's self-expression in the world. And it's existed since the very beginning because it's part of who God is. So... When John writes, in the beginning was the word, it's like, what does he mean by that? Does he mean all of that or none of it or some combination of it? Is the word the fundamental sort of reason that holds everything together? Well, yes. You know, is, is the word the, the essence of everything, the basic idea that gives everything shape? Well, Yes, is the word the creative act of God making things happen in the world? Yes, but more. I mean, John means so much more than just adding these three perspectives together. Because he's trying to get us, he's starting with what we understand and then drawing us into a story where he's going to challenge what we think we understand about the word by showing us the word himself in Jesus lived out. On these pages. He's introducing us to a word who is this, this person stepping out of the realm of rationality and essence into time and space and into our lives. Because he's introducing us to Jesus, and all of that is in just the first six words of the introduction. 
And John has so much more, uh, so much more to go, so much more to say. He goes on because you know if there is such a thing as an eternally existing word, as your Greek neighbors and Roman neighbors think, and there is also an eternally existing God, Yahweh, as your Jewish neighbor would insist, then either this word is God or is with God. It's one or the other. And John says, yes, both. Not just that the word is God-like, but that this word he's introducing to us is himself God. And yet God and the word are two different persons, but the same essence, however this works. John is introducing us to a Jesus that is so much more than just a a good man or a good person who's come on the scene, but a Jesus who, when you zoom all the way back to the beginning, finds his existence from the very beginning. Distinct from the person of God and yet himself fully and completely God. All that packed into, well, and more we don't have time for, all that packed into one verse Uh, 16 words uh, that completely knocks down and redefines all the assumptions we would sort of bring to this text if we were reading it in John's day and trying to understand what he meant by using this common phrase, you know, the word, knocking down our understanding of it so John can rebuild it uh, through the story that he's going on to tell. Now, why spend all that time just rolling around in one verse? Well, because... This is the one we anticipate in these four weeks. It's his advent, the advent of this Jesus that we remember and that we long for. It's his coming that we both look back on, not just as a, as a baby sort of wrapped up in all the sentimentality and emotionalism that comes with seeing an infant, but seeing the, the, very, the word himself stepped into our world. Now again, John has a lot more to say, and we don't have time to, to spend digging into nuances of, of all of it. So I'm going to speed us through the next couple of verses, because I want us to focus, uh, get our focus in on verses 4 and, and 5. So in verses 2 and 3, John is reiterating what he's already said, that the word was there in the beginning with God before anything that was made, and that everything in the world owes its existence to the word. God created everything, but he did it through the word. Just like back in Genesis at the very beginning when God spoke and with his words he created. Well, John is expanding the picture and saying we did just create with his words, his speech, but through the word, this eternally existing one. But I want to, as I said, focus us in on verses 4 and 5, because John is moving in, in successive steps from before the beginning of creation to creation itself and then to the creation of life in verse 4. So he says, in him, in the word, was life, and the life was the light of, of men. So as he's introducing us to this Jesus whose who's coming we remember and whose return we long for, he's saying, look, keep in mind, this, we're, I'm not saying, John is not saying that Jesus uh, has life or he brings life with him, but that life is in him. 
in the word. The source of all life is in him. You could think of it this way. We are living because we borrow life from the word. We are living, but he is life itself. It's kind of the difference between the sun and the moon, right? One generates light and the other participates in the light by reflecting it. The moon doesn't generate its own light. It can't. But it can participate in the light. It can borrow light. It can share in the light from the sun. We share in, we borrow, we participate in the life that comes from the word, the one John is introducing us to. The word, the one who generates life in us. And so what he's saying here, in him was, was life, and the life was the light of men. He's saying it's only because there's life in the word that there's life in anything else. Life doesn't exist on its own. It comes from somewhere. And so life itself finds its source and its meaning and its power in the word. Life is in him. And, and John says that life is the light of men. Now, these are... Big, huge words that, that he's using and not giving us too much definition to because, again, if we were reading the whole gospel, he goes over these ideas over and over and over again. Creation, life, light, death, darkness. These words show up again and again. And so in our first run through, we're not entirely sure how we're supposed to understand light itself. Maybe it's intellectual illumination. Maybe it's knowledge of, of God. But at the very least, we get from our first read-through that it's, it's the Word, the one who is generating life, is also creating light. Life and light are bound up together. You can't have one life without light. You can't have light without first finding life. And John says in verse 5 that light shines in the darkness. And darkness hasn't overcome it. And the word overcome is a really fun word because it's like John does. It's a word that has all these different meanings to it that, that sort of uh, can, can all wrap, wrap together. But it's odd the way he uses it here, which is why different translations are going to translate in different ways. Because you don't normally think, uh, we at least don't normally think of darkness as, as something that is actively struggling against light. Right, in our scientific age, we don't think of light and dark as uh, equal and opposite forces that are uh, opposing each other. Darkness is simply the absence of light. Right? Darkness is wherever light is not. It, it may be the normal state of the world until something heats up and begins to generate light, but darkness isn't a thing. It's, it's nothing. Unless you strike a match, or I should say, until you strike a match, you know, there's, there's no light. There's just darkness. But once you strike the match, once you flip the switch, there's light. And, and it's not like it's really a challenge for light to push out darkness. The moment the light appears, darkness has no power whatsoever. You can try this. You can get up in the middle of the night when everything's dark and flip on a switch and see how long it takes for light and dark to struggle against each other before light ultimately overcomes the dark. How long does it take? Not that long. It's instantaneous. We talk about the speed of light. We don't talk about the speed of dark. Right? Because dark isn't a thing. 
It's the absence of a thing. It's the absence of light. And yet John gives it in this introduction uh, some, some force, some, some power, or at least some sort of idea that it's, it's pushing back, that darkness is fighting back against light, at least struggling to understand it, if not actively trying to overcome it. But he doesn't give darkness any sort of power to create or to generate life on its own or light on its own. Darkness is a force that can only destroy. It's like rust on a car. Right? D- uh, darkness can't, uh, well, let me put it this way. Rust can't build a car, but it can consume one. Darkness can't create life. But in John's metaphorical use of the terms here, darkness can consume it. And yet, the light shines on. If you're the type of person who writes in your Bible, then in verse 5 where it says the light shines in the darkness, you can go ahead and add a little word there. The light shines on in the darkness. It's, a, it's that form of the verb that just means, hey, it's continually shining. It's shining and shining and shining. And darkness hasn't, no matter what darkness has thrown at light, it has not been able to stop the light from shining. Light continues to shine and will continually shine. No matter how hard darkness has tried, it has not been able to wrap its arms around light and set up borders for it and say, you can only go this far. And no further than this. Because it's the very nature of light to shine wherever there's darkness. See, just these few verses as John is trying to whet our appetites or or, or pique our interest in this one who has come and who is coming again. He's heaping all of these huge ideas onto us about light and darkness and, and life. And saying, look, nothing can stop life from living when that life comes from the eternally living one. And nothing can stop light from shining when that light comes from the eternally shining one. And so, John says in just these first five verses, imagine, if you can, imagine light itself and life itself and imagine the, the rationality that holds the whole world together and, and the, the image of every single thing you've seen that you can think of, any idea you can generate, and, and the very creative word and act and power of God himself. And you wrap all of that together, light and life and reason and power And you wrap all of that together and it becomes a a human being that steps out of the realm, out of God's world and into ours. What do you think that person would be like? How would you anticipate his coming? If the essence and rationality of the universe, life itself, light itself, and God's creative word and power and direction and intention were all rolled together into one human being who who came into this world, 
Would you look forward to that? If he has come and said he is coming again, how would that change the way you wait for him? It's tough when you're reading verses like this to, to kind of step back and go, what are we supposed to, to do with the first five verses of John? What are you supposed to do with verses like this? Well, what we're supposed to do is wait. We're supposed to wait. That's what the season of Advent is, and that's why we're spending this time in this text, because John is introducing us to the one who has come and who will come again and saying, this is the one that you're anticipating. This is the one you're waiting for. And the nature of of how you wait for a thing depends entirely on who you think you're waiting for and what you think you're waiting for. I know waiting is hard. Uh, We wait for all sorts of things. You wait for your Pop-Tarts to pop or for your parents to wake up on Christmas morning so you can open the presents. You wait for your report card or the college acceptance letter. You wait for your job to get easier. You wait for the stock market to rebound. You wait for your flight to come in. You wait for the call from the doctor. You wait for the sermon to be over. You wait for all sorts of things, right? Yep. No specifics on which one you're thinking of there. You, you, you wait for so much, and, and the way you wait depends entirely on what you think you're getting at the end of it. You can wait in anticipation for the Pop-Tarts to pop. And you can wait with dread for the, doctor, for, for the phone call from the doctor. And you can wait with anxiety for the stock market to rebound depending on how old you are. How you wait depends entirely on what you think you're waiting for. And the only thing that makes waiting easier or makes it an exciting anticipation instead of a long, drawn-out, dreaded anticipation is knowing the one you're waiting for. I mean, that's why all of my nieces and nephews line up at the window when their cousins are coming because they know exactly what they're waiting to get when the waiting is over. There's going to be hugs and yelling and playing and screaming and crying and exhaustion and chaos and love. All of the reasons you can't wait to go and all the reasons you can't wait to go home, right? <laughs> and they love it. It's, it's the best part about being a kid is just the, the pile of, of cousins together. When you know what you're waiting for, it completely changes the way you wait. So as we start into this series or this season of Advent, you know, the next four weeks leading up to, to Christmas morning, the question for us to walk away with is essentially what are you waiting for? Who are you waiting for? Many of us are just waiting for a kind of a generic holiday emotional mishmash of sentimentality and peace and goodwill, whatever that is, and like warm, fuzzy feelings for each other because we're just kind of waiting for a a baby of some sort that makes us happy 
It's like the holiday equivalent of a casserole. Just shoving a whole bunch of things into one pan and hoping you feel good when you eat it, right? If, if that's what you're waiting for, well, then, you know, Advent is just going to be a long run-up to kind of a disappointing ending. Presents are, are open and it's over. But if the one we're waiting for is this one that John is describing, the eternally existing Word of God himself, who is, is, is God himself and is moving into the world, bringing life and light to all of us. If that's the one we're waiting for, because we've already met him once and now we're waiting for him to return, then Advent becomes the season of, well, standing at the window, excitedly waiting for maybe, maybe this is, maybe this is him. Maybe he's coming now. Maybe he's coming soon. Because he is. You know, Christmas means he has come. Advent means he's, he's coming again. And because we know the one who is coming, we can wait for his return. So let's wait together. And let's pray. Father, in these words, uh, you give us such a a glimpse into one uh, we do not understand and cannot fully wrap our minds around, and yet one who has become one of us so that we could know him. Father, in this season of waiting, whatever, whatever season we ourselves are walking through, whether it's a season of, of joy or a season of sorrow, a season of longing and, and desire or a season of regret, Father, may you refocus us this season to wait for the coming of your Son, the one who has come and will come again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.